Well, please uh, take a Bible and turn with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, it's been several weeks since we were in 1 Peter. I was away for a study leave and then vacation. I, we didn't actually plan to be away from church, but as many of you know, we had some COVID exposure, and I wanted to thank all of you for, for your prayers for my parents. Uh, my dad's doing okay. He's mostly recovered, and my mom, however, is um, continuing to make slower progress, so thank you for keeping them uh, in your prayers. But uh, it's been several weeks since we were uh, together, so let's remember where we were in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Peter, of course, is, is writing to Christians spread throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And in, uh, we, we've seen in verses 3 through 12 that it's actually one long sentence in the Greek, but it breaks down nicely into three sections. Uh, and so we saw in verses 3 through 5 in that first section, Peter rehearsing uh, some of the gospel privileges that that are ours in Christ Jesus, that God the Father has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to a, to a living hope and a, an imperishable inheritance and a salvation that's secure and ready to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 6 through 9, Peter takes those privileges and he applies them to Christians who are who are grieved by, by various trials on account of their identifying with Jesus. And he wants them to, to see their trials in the light and in the context of their privileges so that they understand those grief-inducing trials are temporary and purposeful. In other words, they're, they're not going to last forever, and God is doing something through them. And as a result of that, Christians can rejoice in the midst of trials because they know what's coming and because they know to some extent what God intends to do through those trials. Now, the third section is verses 10 through 12, and that's where we're going to be spending time together this morning. And we're going to notice three groups engaging with God's word, responding to the gospel. And we'll notice how each of the groups uh, responds. So first there are the prophets, the prophets search. Then there are preachers who announce, and then there are angels who long. So the prophets search, the preachers announce, and the angels long. That's what we're going to uh, use as our guide for this morning. But let's Go ahead and read this passage together, First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Let's hear God's word. Concerning this salvation, it is the salvation that's going to be revealed at the coming of Christ Jesus. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, 
and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I want to start this morning by asking you a couple simple questions. How do you think about the Old Testament? How how does the Old Testament relate to your Christian faith and your Christian life? Now, maybe that doesn't seem like an incredibly significant or important question for you to consider, but I actually think it is. One of the basic reasons is the simple fact that two-thirds of our Bible is made up of what we call the Old Testament. So a question for you to ponder. What is the, the role and the place of the Old Testament in the Christian life and for our faith? Some of you might know the name uh, Andy Stanley. Um, pretty well-known pastor here in the United States. I think he, he's in Georgia. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Big church, wide-reaching influence through books and other media. Well, a few years back, he suggested an answer to these questions that I've just asked you. And uh, Andy Stanley suggests that it's time for Christians to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. That's his word, unhitch. Uh, He also wrote a book where he argues even more strongly that it's time for Christians to stop relying on the Old Testament in order to understand the Christian faith and what it means to to follow Jesus. And so for Stanley, the Old Testament is is not needed. And perhaps even worse, it can hinder Christians. It can hinder Christians in their faith and in their witness. So best to detach ourselves. That's the position of some today. So what do we make of that? Should we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? I, I think most of us here this morning would say, no, that's a bad proposal. We need to throw that in the trash. But I'm going to press you a little bit and ask, what about functionally and practically in our own Christian lives, in our Christian walks? Do we practically set aside two-thirds of what I am going to insist is Christian scripture? And was Christian scripture from It's very inception. I think these verses in 1 Peter are important for answering the questions I'm posing, for exposing just how bad Andy Stanley's proposal is, but also exposing what I think many Christians today are missing out on when they functionally neglect and ignore the first two-thirds of their Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, Throughout 1 Peter, and in these verses in particular, Peter teaches us that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. It always has been. He establishes our dependence on the Old Testament for for making sense of the identity and mission of Christ and the, the nature of the Christian life. He's going to teach the church to see itself in solidarity with the Old Testament people of God. He's going to repeatedly explain the work of Christ, and tell Christians how to live in the world while relying upon the Old Testament. So Peter is 
helping us here think about what Scripture is, particularly with attention to the Old Testament. And he does so by reflecting on these three groups I've, I've already mentioned. There are the prophets who search, the preachers who announce, and the angels who long. Let's start with the first group and reflect upon their response. The prophets who search. Have a look again at verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now the prophets Peter's talking about here are the Old Testament prophets, the prophets who who wrote the Old Testament. And he describes their response to the revelation the Spirit uh, gave to them, a revelation centered on and all about Jesus Christ, his sufferings, and the glory to follow. But one of the things I, I want you to notice is the way that Peter identifies the Spirit who was indicating these things to the prophets. He identifies the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. And that's incredibly significant. It's a title we see elsewhere in the New Testament as well. What it's doing here, I think, is Peter's wanting us to understand that the, the, the person of Christ is linked up with the work and activity of the Holy Spirit. Um, he's telling us here that the, the, the Spirit, as the Spirit of Christ, is the one who was the agent who revealed to the prophets what God the Father was saying through his Son. So think about it this way. What, what is the Old Testament? Peter wants us to understand at the most fundamental level, the Old Testament is God speaking in Christ. And the Spirit is the one who revealed these things to the prophets. And that means at the very least, as we reflect upon the significance of that, that Christ was not inactive prior to his incarnation. It is Christ Think about one of, the, one of the ways Christ is described as the eternal word of the Father who revealed himself to the prophets of old by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he was indicating to them the, the pattern of his, his messianic suffering and the, the glory to follow ahead of time. So the Spirit of Christ bore advance witness to Christ's ministry to his sufferings and his subsequent glories. Now, I I hope that if we just think about the question um, or the answer that Andy Stanley proposed that I mentioned a couple minutes ago in the context of what I'm saying right now, you know, unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. I I hope you see how crazy that sounds. If you understand the, the, what, the, what the nature of the Old Testament actually is. But bringing it a little bit closer to home, if we just functionally neglect the first two-thirds of our Bible, what we're doing is ignoring God's word, revealing Christ, and the gracious salvation that is ours. 
You see, my friends, the Old Testament is Christian scripture, always has been and continues to be as the living and active word of God, bearing witness to God's purpose to save sinners through the suffering and glory of his son. Now, realizing that, I think, will lead us to respond to the prophetic word the way that the prophets did. If this is what the Old Testament is, the, the divine son revealing ahead of time by the spirit his role as messianic son and all that that would result in for the salvation of his people, is it any wonder that the prophets searched and inquired diligently? Why? Why did they do that? Because they wanted to know the Christ that was being promised. They wanted to know the person and the time in which he would come. They wanted to know the Christ being revealed in sacred writing. Now, before we move on this morning, I, I think it would be helpful for us to reflect for a few minutes on how the Old Testament prophets bear witness to Christ and to his mess, the pattern of his messianic ministry of suffering than glory. Because I think, I think this is right. I think for a lot of folks today, when it comes to the Old Testament scriptures, we understand at a basic level, yeah, the Old Testament has some things to say um, about Christ Jesus. And I think for a lot of people, they see that primarily in terms of what I'll call predictive prophecy. Right? By predictive prophecy, I mean uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that speak something about the identity of Christ and his ministry. Um, so, for example, take a, take a well-known one like Matthew, or excuse me, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, pre- predicting that the promised Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling that prophetic word. So we, we have to say, of course, there's predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. However, predictive prophecy occupies a fairly small amount of space in the much larger context of the Old Testament. And so if we, we think the only way the Old Testament is bearing witness to Christ, his suffering and subsequent glory is by predictive prophecy, we're actually going to have a very diminished appreciation for how the Old Testament prophets point us to Jesus. And so, um, one of the things we need to understand then uh, is that, well, let me put it this way. Let me come back for a second. If, if we're limited to predictive prophecy, what are we going to make of the rest of historical narrative and wisdom literature? Um, are, we, are we going to think it's just you know, outdated history that doesn't really have anything to do with the people of God today? Or, or perhaps a, a guide to to the, the wise way of living that, however, is divorced from anything to do with the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to suggest to you this morning, if, if we're tempted to think that way, we're not really hearing what Peter's saying. Better yet, we're not really hearing what Jesus is saying. Remember Jesus speaking to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he he reminds them that he has already spoken to them 
from the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings, all of the things pertaining to him and how they were to be fulfilled. Now notice what Jesus is doing there because the Hebrew Bible has three parts to it. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. So what is Jesus saying to his disciples? He's saying that he has shown to them how all of the Old Testament bears witness to him. And then he goes on to say these words. Listen to this. He says, thus it is written. He's still talking about the Old Testament. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now hold on a minute. (laughs) Where does it say that in the Old Testament? And if you go looking for a chapter and verse where that is said outright, you're going to be searching in vain. So what is Jesus getting at? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a summary of what the Old Testament is really communicating, what it is really revealing to the people of God. Christ and how he should suffer and rise from the dead to bring salvation to light so that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to the whole world. That is, if you like, Jesus' Cliff Notes version of what the Old Testament is all about, bearing witness to him and the pattern of his messianic ministry. And what what I want us to try to appreciate this morning together is the way the Old Testament bears witness to him and the pattern of his ministry by more than predictive prophecy. Okay, Christ and the pattern of his ministry, it is, it is woven into the Old Testament. Think about this with me. Why so often do we read stories about where God deliberately uses weak things in order to accomplish his glorious purposes? Why, does, why do God's people have to so often be taken down deep into the darkest valleys before being exalted? Why? Why? It's because their lives are being conformed to the pattern of Christ's own life of suffering than glory. Here are some examples for you to think about. We see the pattern revealed in the weakness of Abraham, the Bible tells us, whose whose body was already as good as dead. And he's married to Sarah, who was well past age-bearing years, who had experienced infertility and and, and barrenness. But God, we, we read, is one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so he chose Abraham and Sarah, and through their promised offspring, brought blessing to the nations of the world. We see the pattern in Joseph. Think about Joseph for a minute. Despised by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, eventually put into prison and forgotten. But what's the bigger story? The bigger story is that he was chosen by God and raised up by God to a place of authority, sharing in the glory of Pharaoh and became the means of saving those who had despised him. He saved his family and received honor from his father and brothers. 
Think about this pattern in Moses, separated from his people in the wilderness, but chosen and called by God to lead his people out of bondage into freedom. We see the, the, the pattern there in King David, don't we? The least of the sons of Jesse, not even considered as an eligible candidate for kingship, but he's one who was chosen by God and anointed to be the great king of Israel. And you see, we could just keep going and going and going with examples like this, but we see that the experience of God's people is conformed to this particular pattern that reaches its ultimate climax in the sufferings of Christ and the glory that followed. So come back to the prophet's response for a minute of searching and inquiring diligently. They wanted to know the Christ being revealed. So what did they do? They searched the scriptures. I think that that simple fact in and of itself is a challenge for many today. Isn't it right to say that for a lot of folks today, they're probably not all that interested in knowing God as much as they are in experiencing God and having some sort of feeling, emotional experience. I want to suggest it's better to have the prophets as our guide here. They wanted to know God truly, so what did they do? They searched the scriptures, they read, they prayed, they studied, they discussed, they inquired carefully, they investigated, not because they wanted to be, you know, a smarty pants, right, smarter than the next guy. They wanted to understand the mystery of Christ, which is the very same thing that caused those disciples' hearts on the road to Emmaus to burn within them. As the Lord Jesus opened their eyes to see what? To see him being revealed on the pages of scripture. What warmed their hearts was seeing Jesus revealed in the written word. So here's what we learn from the prophets searching. Christ revealed himself by the spirit to the prophets We need to understand that the Old Testament is about him, his suffering, and subsequent glory, and the salvation that has secured for the people of God. And so if you want to know Christ and what it means to be a Christian, dear friends, study the Bible. (laughs) Study the Bible because it reveals him. It expounds him. It offers him. It proclaims him, it exalts in his glory and power to save. So what is the right response for us to such a divine word? It is to be humble listeners and learners, not so, again, not so that we can be brains on a stick, but Christians whose hearts burn within us when we see the one whom our soul loves. Now, I know uh, as we're thinking about how the Old Testament reveals Jesus, don't think that I'm saying the Old Testament only reveals Jesus by predictive prophecy and this pattern of suffering and glory. There are many, many other ways the Old Testament reveals Christ to us. But I'm picking up on this pattern of Christ's life and ministry because it's incredibly important for understanding 1 Peter as a whole. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes 
But uh, I've gotten out of control with the prophet's search. So we need, to, we need to move on from this point, and we need to go to the second. And I promise to be uh, more brief. Let's, let's have a look. So the prophet's search, and now we're going to think about the preachers uh, who announce. And I want us to notice the, the content of their preaching, right? The message they announce. And we've got to... The, these verses are dense. We've got to read carefully. Right, the message they proclaimed, the, the preachers Peter mentions, the message they proclaimed is the same message as the Old Testament prophets. See that? What was indicated to the prophets, Peter says, was announced to these Christians by those, they're not even named, by those who preached the good news to you. So put all that together, what is Peter saying? Peter is saying that the message of the prophets is the good news, and it's the good news that these preachers announced. You see, while New Testament books were beginning to circulate among churches by this time, we need to understand and appreciate that there really was never a time that the New Testament church was without Christian scripture, because the Old Testament was their scripture. And the Christ revealed in the prophets is the Christ the preachers proclaimed, notice, from the books of the prophets. So they preach the word from the text of Holy Scripture, and the content of their message was Christ himself. They announced the sufferings and the subsequent glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it might seem obvious if I say, you know, Christian preachers ought to preach Christ. It seems self-evident, but, but I think we do need to notice this carefully in our day because if I can beat up on preachers for a minute, I'm part, right? Um, it, is, it is very easy, I think, to fall into a kind of preaching that does not preach Christ, it is very easy to take scripture and misuse it and abuse it to co-opt it for some other kind of agenda. We see it all the time with certain political or social issues. It's often reduced to a, a, a book on morality, how to, how to live a good life, or in the most crass form, how to live your best life now. Now, to be sure, don't, don't mishear me. The Bible speaks authoritatively to social Issues and it does guide us in the good life, but never ever apart from proclaiming Christ, never ever apart from the significance of who Jesus is and the, the, the significance of his suffering and subsequent glory and the salvation that that has secured for the people of God. And so, Peter is reminding us here that faithful preaching opens the scriptures to expound Christ and the new life that is found in him and him alone. Every part, therefore, is related to him, proclaiming and applying Jesus to us. Friends, that is the necessary mark of preaching if it is going to be called Christian preaching. Preaching that exalts Jesus because the message preached is the message of the Bible, 
And as we've seen, the message of the Bible is Jesus Christ and the pattern of his life and the salvation that is secured by that life. And so if we can anticipate here just a bit of what's, what's going to be developed more in the rest of 1 Peter, we need to see that the pattern of Christ's life stamped upon the people of God in the Old Testament. That continues to be the case for Christians living now. That the pattern of Christ's life is stamped upon the lives who identify with Christ. And that means, dear friends, that trials and suffering endured here will give way to glory to come. Now, think about that then in the context of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to these Christians who are scattered all over Asia Minor, who are being grieved by various trials because they identify with Jesus. So they're struggling. They're going through hard times. And Peter wants them to understand And see their experience in the light of their relation to Christ. He wants them to see the pattern of Christ's own life as the pattern for their Christian lives. And when you think about that, it's tremendously encouraging and helpful. Because it means, it means first of all, that the path we are called to walk upon, dear friends, is a path that our Savior has already trod. That's one thing that I think is tremendously helpful. But it's also helpful because if we're ever wondering, is this ever going to end? Right? Some of these trials and difficulties that we are called to endure, is it ever going to end? And is there any point to it? Is there any purpose? Dear brothers and sisters, the pattern of Christ's life being stamped upon ours tells you That while darkness may last for a time, joy comes in the morning. And while life might be mixed with sorrow right now, one day it's going to be pure joy. And that there is a purpose. God is at work in the trials to accomplish his purposes. So he's saying, dear brothers and sisters, hold on. The trials of being a Christian aren't forever. Look to Jesus and see the pattern of his life And know that the story of your life is already written in heaven. So, what have we covered so far in thinking about the preacher's announcement? We've we've mentioned the message of the preachers. They preach the text of God's word. Uh, the, The message they preach, they preach Christ. We've thought just momentarily about the application of that message to grieving, hurting Christians. There's one more thing to notice here. And it's, I'll call it the power of preaching. Take a look at verse 12. Peter says, They preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So again, these these no-name preachers, we have no idea who they were, who um, proclaimed the gospel to these believers, uh, to whom Peter is now writing, did so, if we can borrow some of Paul's language for a moment, in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. That was the characteristic of their preaching. Not in persuasive words of human wisdom. Instead, it was spirit-illuminated, spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered preaching 
that convicted and converted hearts. And Peter wants us to understand that that power comes from God alone. There's a, there's a question and answer in the, the Westminster Larger Catechism that I think is just so helpful along these lines. Uh, it's question and answer 155. And it, here's the question. It asks, how is the word made effectual unto salvation? How is it powerful to that end of salvation? Where does the power come from to, to change lives, to save people? How does that happen? It's a really strange thing when you think about it in terms of a, uh, someone standing up and explaining and, implying, and applying an ancient book. How does that work? Listen to the answer, because I think it's so, so helpful. It says, the Spirit of God, notice that, the Spirit of God, not, not the preacher, not mere man, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them to Christ of conforming them to his image, of subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptation and corruptions, of building them up in grace and uh, establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Beautiful description that I think captures the message of scripture about the significance of the preached word among God's people. Think about that. All this converting, saving, transforming, comforting in Christ happens as the Spirit does the work by the ministry of the Word read and preached in our lives. So again, it's not a preacher's charisma. It isn't a matter of human cleverness. It's not a matter of the preacher's personality, his ability of storytelling or to be funny. If that's the case, I'm in a lot of trouble. Every time I try to tell a joke in the pulpit, it tends to just fall flat. It it is the word proclaimed in the power of the Spirit that does it. And so, friends, if we want to be a people equipped to stand firm in the grace of God, one of the things we need to do is we need to pray that the power of the Spirit would accompany the ministry of the word in our midst. That's, That's one thing. Another thing, we must be resolved to devote ourselves. And I, I mean give ourselves wholeheartedly to the ministry of the word in our lives. And number three, we must pray earnestly that the Father would pour out the spirit of his Son to make the word effectual in all of our hearts. That's the second group, okay? Preachers announce. Let's go to the third, and I promise to be even more brief with this one. The prophets search, the preachers announce, and then finally the angels long. And we see this in verse 12. Take a look. Peter says at the end, the angels long to look into these things. Okay, so the prophets diligently searched the scriptures, longing to know Christ and of his sufferings and glory and the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories was the burden of the message of the preachers. And now we're told that this is the great preoccupation and cause of wonder 
among the angelic hosts. That word longing, I think, is worth thinking about for just a moment. It's significant. It means to, to peer in from the outside. It's the same word that John uses in John chapter 20, verse 11, when he describes the, the women who go to the tomb on the first Lord's Day, and Mary peers into the tomb to find that Jesus is gone. That's the same word that Peter is using here to describe the angels looking in from the outside into the mystery and wonder of Christ. Think about this. The, the ministry of the angels during the life and ministry of Jesus. Think about that with me for a minute. You'll, you'll remember that the angels were, were there basically at every point during the earthly ministry of Christ. They, they'd been there thrilled to see the unfolding of the Father's plan and history and the fulfilling of the ancient promises. They were astonished to observe the, the eternal Son, the Lord and Maker of heaven and earth, humble himself by taking on flesh, joining himself to a human nature uh, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. They announced with, with wonder and joy the pregnancy of Mary. And then when Jesus was born, they filled the sky with, with singing and tidings of joy. They were, they were there ministering to Christ during his, his wilderness wandering, or his temptation in, in the wilderness. They were, they were there on that first Lord's Day when after Jesus had laid down his life and bled and died for our salvation, when he emerged forth from the grave, bringing life and immortality to light, and when he ascended into glory and the disciples stood there completely dumbfounded, the angels were there to remind them that just as he has gone into heaven, he will one day return again. See, at every point, the angels are there bearing witness to the life and the ministry of Jesus, but we need to appreciate this, that at no point were they the objects of his mission. At no point were the angels the objects of the mission, the messianic mission entrusted to the Son. It was not for them that he came. It was not for them that he obeyed and bled and died and rose and ascended to be seated to reign. It's all been for us, brothers and sisters. For you and me, he lived and he obeyed and he bled and he suffered and he died and he rose and he ascended and he's coming back for you one day. So I hope you see what Peter is up to here. He wants you to come to terms with just how privileged we really are, even in the midst of grief-inducing trials. We are, we are privileged historically if we compare ourselves for a moment to the prophets who search diligently because we are those upon whom the end of the ages has come. We are those who are the recipients of the full revelation that is given and revealed in the coming of Christ Jesus. We can go a step further and say not only are we privileged Historically, we might even dare to say that we're privileged, I, I don't know how to put it, cosmologically, when we compare ourselves to the angels. 
We are the recipients of something into which the angelic hosts long to look and gaze. See what he's saying. And here's the thing we need to appreciate in 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12 as a whole. Among the amazing privileges that we have received, one of the best is the word of God itself. The prophets searched it out. The preachers proclaimed its message. And the angels longed to see the plan brought to pass. You see, it's in this book, by the blessing of God, We have come to know and love Jesus Christ and we are being conformed to his life. So we've got to ask ourselves, why why would we ever want to neglect it? Why would we ever want to leave it collecting dust on the shelf? Among the greatest of our privileges is the gift of the word of God who bears witness to the one who loved us and laid his life down for us. And so here's my prayer for us, that we may diligently search and inquire about the scriptures, that we may know and cherish Christ who meets us on every page. And may we proclaim and receive the message of Christ's suffering and glory and what it has secured for us, a salvation that is ready to be revealed on the day of his appearing. And so may we appreciate our privileges, chief among them, the the very word of God, as God has spoken to us in his son and revealed these things by the spirit of Christ. Let's pray together. Our heavenly father, we do thank you and give you praise for the way you have made yourself known to us in the person of your son. Thank you for the riches of your word, which bears witness to Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and in death. We thank you that he came in the fullness of time to suffer on our behalf and to be raised up in glory to reign forever. And we thank you for the promise that he is coming again. And when we see him, we will be like him. We thank you for the the hope that we have that is confirmed to us in the scriptures. Make us diligent students who inquire and study to better know the God who made us, the God who saves us. Make us faithful in announcing this good news to the world and help us to appreciate just how privileged we really are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.